The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Tonight we have another great conversation uh, partner that I'm excited for you to hear from, and, and somebody that I would say is is one of of the great surprises in my life. One of those gifts that that God just kind of drops right before you, and thankfully there is there's just no way. Uh, to miss it. A few years ago, uh, Steve Blacksmith uh, showed up on the scene and said, hey, Ryan, what do you think about doing this partnership where the Inn and College Young Life, we take the best of the things that we do together and see what we might be able to do with that, what God might be doing if we partner uh, together. And so, uh, as many of you are aware, we have this wonderful, wonderful kind of relationship hybrid, I don't even know what you want to call it, of the inn that is College Young Life. We love College Young Life. Young, you lo- young Life College loves us. It's great. And uh, Steve and I in that time have had uh, a, a chance to really uh, get to know each other. Steve is somebody who has done a lot of ministry in this area in young life circles. I, we, I sometimes like to play this game that I call like, you don't even need the six degrees of St- Steve Blacksmith. You just need like the three degrees of Steve Blacksmith when it comes to young life. He's, he's very well known. He's done a, a lot of ministry here in Washington. He'll likely tell you a little bit about some of the ministry he's done in Arizona, how he ended up back here. But more than anything, what I want you to know about Steve as I have interacted with him is that truly uh, within the family of God, Jesus kind of redefines what family is. And for me, Steve is one of those guys that is just truly a brother. Um, I, I think about him that way, and, and it's just rare that there are those moments where you meet somebody and you go, this dude is my brother, and I am so grateful for that. He's also a dad to three boys and a husband to Heather, but he's my brother. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Blacksmith. Hey. Ryan has many gifts, and among those is introducing people well. I was just sitting over there going, man, this guy sounds great. I forgot it was me for a second, but I just I remember that last week, too. And it's fantastic, because a few weeks ago we had Coach Romar. Anybody here when Romar was here? It's fantastic. It was awesome. Sure, it's good. He's not here tonight. Sorry. And then... Uh, then, uh, then there was, uh, Skip Lee was, well, we had Michael Wu was in there. He was bringing it too. And then, uh, Skip Lee was here last week and now a sex educator next week. So it's awesome. You had the, it's like a joke. You know, the, the basketball coach, a lawyer, and a sex ed person went into a bar. But in between, Steve Blacksmith came to speak. And that's all I got tonight for you. So, uh, the punchline I don't know and it probably wouldn't be repeatable anyhow. Hey, here's the thing. Uh, tonight, is um, a wonderful opportunity to continue in this discussion. Uh, what am I supposed to do with my life? Where do I go from here? And, and I'm going to take it from a little bit of a different angle as someone who has often, okay, I don't want to say often, I'm all grown up now and I'm a big boy and all that kind of stuff, but um, who many times in my life has found myself where I would say, no, I'm not. I'm not in the path that God has laid out for me, and I was aware of it. And so that's not like something to like, you know, like, make a badge of honor or a tattoo on your back or anything like that. But if there's anything that I can share with you that I've learned from the times where I was in places where I couldn't quite clearly hear the still small voice of the Lord, I would love to share with you where I've seen those places. So you might see them as they're coming. Sidestep them, 
Hold to what the Lord has for you. And that's kind of the plan I have for tonight. So I'm excited about that. Also excited because today, you probably don't know this, is my, my middle son, Drew, his 15th birthday. It's pretty fantastic. And uh, so uh, I said, uh, I got to go. And he was good with that. Um, actually, I dropped him off at basketball practice. And I said, but Drew, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to represent you tonight because it's your birthday and your dad's got to be on. So let me tell you a little bit about Drew Blacksmith because it's, you know, his night. He just gets like two minutes, but it really helps me later on, okay? So this is Drew at, I don't know, seven-ish or whatever, but it doesn't matter the year. Just the hairstyle alone will let you know that's Drew. Like a minute earlier, he's like, hey, somebody said, hey, who wants to cut your hair into mohawks and then spray them into Fourth of July colors because it's Fourth of July? But with Drew, all you have to get is, hey, who wants to? And he's like, oh, yeah, let's do it. And so uh, he was the first one. He got his hair cut before all the older boys and because he's crazy. That's the first thing. Second thing, second slide here. Um, okay, he's got those pouting good looks. You know, he... <laughs> The, you know, my kids have to be my friend on Facebook, you know, and uh, because there's bad stuff out there. It, it turns out they tell me, Dad, you're one of the bad things out there. You're a creeper, all right? You're, and, and like, not in a creepy, creeper way, but in the way it's sort of like, Dad, you can't step into a conversation and say, hey, how was your trip to Hawaii? When the only way you know they went to Hawaii is they posted pictures. I do not so much get these rules, okay? I'm 44. Why did they put the pictures up? They're putting the pictures up to brag that they went to Hawaii and I didn't. And all I did was say the nice thing, you went to Hawaii. And they're like, oh, how'd you know I went to Hawaii? I'm like, uh, Facebook. And, you know, Drew's walking in the back going, creeper. So, but the dude's got more lady friends on Facebook than anybody in the world. This was him probably about nine or whatever. It, again, doesn't matter because he's, he's just Drew. The world smiles upon Drew a little bit. The sun is shining upon Drew right there. So next picture uh, is this. Drew is passionate. We lived in Tucson, Arizona for eight years. I can guarantee you we were the only Husky fans in our cul-de-sac, okay? But that didn't stop us from having a flag that we put up on every Husky game day up on our, you know, we had a little, uh, what do they call those things? Uh, Flag holder, that's what it is. On the, <laughs> I thought maybe there was another term. Okay, <laughs> on the side of the, of the house. We don't even own an American flag. I mean, I'm, I'm, all, like, I'm all about country, but we had it for the Husky flag. That's what was there. And this is after we beat Arizona in some game. This is Drew <laughs> running around the world's, by the way, largest cul-de-sac you'll ever see in your life. Just kind of running around it going, yeah, go dogs, go dogs. Passionate. A few years ago, some of you were probably in high school then, the Huskies played a little bit of a controversial game in the Sweet 16 against the University of Connecticut Huskies. Maybe you remember that. kid named Brandon Roy was around. Well, we got jobbed by the refs. There's no question about it. It was horrible. And B-Roy sat out a bunch, a bunch of time. And the entire time that B-Roy sat out, so did Drew. He was so distraught and angry and passionate about the game that he just started bawling. And, and like, we didn't send him to his room. He just sent himself there. Tell me when they put Roy back in. And so, you know, and so we brought him back out. And then, you know, he went back like two or three times. And uh, anyhow, he's passionate. And this is a good thing. And it's, it's helped, him, helped him stay in good stead because our family is generation after generation of Huskies, which is a great thing. You know, um, I don't think, oh, yeah, I have one more picture there. That's true. And Drew, like the rest of my family, remind me most, in, uh, most of all that, one, I will be looking up at my boys for the, my entire life because they just they got tall early. And uh, that's Santa creeping on us in the background there. It's kind of cool. 
So, um, and, uh, and all uh, J.D. Drew and Heather and, and, of course, Cole remind me more than anything. They remind me this, that God's plan for my life has been different and better than what I would have come up with. Absolutely. And without question. God's plan and his way is always best. My life and my family are living proof of that. Look at me. I'm a goof. And yet I have... I <laughs> didn't think I was really going to get a laugh on that one. But, uh, but I've been blessed. And my family is, is proof of that. You know, um, when we lived in that massive cul-de-sac as well, I remember one time that um, Drew and J.D. came running into the house. And J.D. was like seven or so, so Drew would have been five. And, and running in, and there's just all this massive commotion. It's like, Dad, 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 guess what happened? You'll never guess what happened. And I kind of look over, and there's Drew. And he's got, um, he's got just kind of tear-stained cheeks, but he's trying to pretend like he hasn't been crying. And, uh, and J.D. sort of looks like he's in trouble, but he doesn't want to be in trouble. And, uh, and I go, what happened? What happened? And then Drew turns around, and there is a tire mark that goes up his right leg over the back of his shirt and then over his left arm. And like, he's got like just treads you know, on him like that. And I'm like, okay, what happened here? J.D. goes, okay. <laughs> Which meant he was culpable. So, and what he said was, the guys were all wanting to have a race from one end of the cul-de-sac. Again, it's freakishly large. You know, like they're at the end of the street. Down to our house. We were all on our bikes, except Drew. You know he doesn't ride his bike. Now, this was a bone of contention around our household. Because the year before, we'd done this big summer vacation. We'd brought bikes. And Drew, even, you know, he had his training wheels. But he was too embarrassed at the time to ride with his training wheels. So he took the training wheels off, but he couldn't ride his bike yet. So we would go, we went RVing. This is a lot of fun with little kids. And uh, it actually was. It was really great. Do it when they're little. When they get older, they won't want to. So anyhow, uh, we had this great time. But we would go to these KOA campgrounds all over the place. And all these little kids that were with us would be riding their bikes around. And Drew, with his just passion and drive, would, with, but he wouldn't humble himself and put the, the, the little wheels on. He just would push his bike around. We're at the, the one at Chelan, the city park in Chelan. He's chasing everybody around, you know, like with his bike. So now we're at, you know, Drew, J.D. said, remember, Drew doesn't ride his bike. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. And he goes, so he decided to race us on feet. Well, what happens when you're racing a bunch of people on bikes and you're on your feet is you get out of the blocks quickly, right? It's harder to get that first, you know, start with the bike. So he was leading the way. But somewhere in between the beginning of the cul-de-sac and, the, and, and our house, they caught him. They all caught him. And that's where his drive, JD said this, Dad, we got close to the, <laughs> we got close to the driveway and we were all catching him and he dove for it. <laughs> Cement is like 115 degrees and he dove across it and there was like a little gravel on the road so I guess he slid and then they rode over him. <laughs> to which, at which point I said to JD, why didn't you stop? And he goes, you know, Drew, I figured he was okay, and I kind of wanted to win. <laughs> so <laughs> this is my life. It's a great thing. Um, and then J.D. gives me one last line that he goes, I'm thinking it's time for Drew to learn how to ride a bike. And so we, we got right after that. But you know what? When my kids were little, and I remember teaching them how to ride a bike, and I don't know if you remember learning how to ride a bike. You'll never forget it, they tell me. But here's the great thing is, when it all boils down to it, learning how to ride a bike is all about trust. 
It's trusting your little legs that they can go fast enough and that your shaky arms will hold on and that the helmet that your mom or dad put on will really protect your melon if you fall and that however many, you know, many other pads they put on you in this sissified world that we live in now, you know, you know, just, you're just coated in pads. You can't even move. But at the end of the day, it comes down to trust that those things will work, but more than anything, that the hand of whoever it is that was holding on to the seat for you was there. And that they would know when you were ready. When it was okay to let go. And, and also, that they would know that even when they did let go, that they should stay pretty near, so that when you start to get a little bit shaky, they can right the ship. They would encourage you and give you the push. They would stabilize you when you got a little shaky. And they would watch you succeed. That's what riding a bike's all about. It takes trust. And similarly... It takes trust placed in the right position to open up our world in a lot of different ways as we grow up. Because we trust mom and dad to give us the push on the bike, a whole new world opened up. The one where we could ride farther than we could see our house anymore and they had to yell more at us to get us back home. The one where, for my kids, it, was, it opened up a world of scrapes and cuts and as they used to call them, bleeds. I got a bleed. <laughs> Super. It opened up the opportunity to begin to explore, leaving them with a question, where am I supposed to go from here? It's the same question we ask at the end of high school, at the end of college, a bunch of different times in your career. Where am I supposed to go from here? And I think that trust is a big deal when you're learning to ride a bike, but it's even a bigger deal when you're trying to figure out how to follow God's plan. Who do you trust with your life? I mean really trust. Because I think we only mostly trust God with all of our heart. There may be somebody here tonight that says, I don't trust any. I trust me with my life. I understand that. But I would just really, really hope that at some point you would get a good look at Jesus Christ and let him get a really good look at you. Hear what he has to say about your condition. Because I think he's trustworthy. And if we place our trust and hope in Jesus Christ, a whole new world opens up. Now, what that world looks like for you is different than what it looks like for me. What it looks like for Lorenzo Romar and Skip Lee and Annika Leiter and Michael Wu is different than what it looks like for me. It's supposed to be. The important part is that trust and the ability to follow the same God to wherever God may lead us. When Romar was here, again, he's not here tonight. If someone told you that he was going to be, I do apologize. He said something about trust that really stuck with me. He said this, I have good news for you. Wherever you sit or stand tonight, God is and has been working in your life, molding and shaping you to be something that he wants you to be. Not for your purposes, but for his. The quotable Lorenzo Romar. I love that. And I think it's true. As I look back in my life, I can see the places where God's hand was all over me. I can look at the path that I've taken and just see the fingerprints of God all over it. On many different places in my life, I can see that. But to be honest, as opposed to lying to you, when I look back at the actual living of it in real time, there was a bunch of that life that I spent stumbling, maybe forward, but stumbling towards God at best. I felt like I was a little bit on the outside of the plan that God had for me. Sometimes, perhaps, it was because God wasn't willing to just show me what was next. 
He had some other purpose for me to walk through whatever I was walking through. But again, there were other times when I would have to say that it was because I'd actively turned away from God. I'd found myself in the places where it's the hardest to hear the still, small voice of the Lord. So as we continue tonight in our series, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life?, I'm going to go to bring a little bit of a hybrid here. It's not just um, opening up the word and not just a testimony, but a little bit. Three different places I found myself in my life and a few course corrections from the word of God that I would pray and hope would help you as you head down your life to avoid some of these places and to be able to get through some of the other things that you, that you might find yourself in. We pray with me. God, I'm grateful that... Um, You have given me a life that I do not deserve. I am so grateful to receive it. There's not one good thing in my life that's here because of me. That there's a lot of good. I'm so thankful, hopeful, and look forward to the things that you have for me because I have seen your faithfulness in my life. I've also seen you there when I was looking the other way. Thank you for not leaving me. Thanks for staying with me and being faithful to me when I was not faithful to you. Jesus, help us as we look at your word tonight. And as I talk about some true life situations that I've been in, that, uh, that by your spirit, you would just connect with each and every person so that they could see at least one time a place where they've been similar. Or maybe if they're in a place like that now, that they would have hope that you are not unaware of their situation. And you get the last word. In Jesus' name, amen. The first place that I found myself um, is uh, a really strange place. matter of fact, I have a picture for you right here. Um, That is the pit at Oregon. Isn't it a horrible place? It's awful. Like, if you look up there, like, could you ever hear the voice of God while you were in the pit? (laughs) This is a theological question that somebody needs to answer. Like, look, look, there's the one guy. He's kind of got his hand up like this. He's saying, God, I can't hear you. I'm in the pit. And then there's the dude with the mask on. And he's got to be one of Satan's little helpers. And uh, (laughs) so that's a bad place. Right there. It's where the U of O used to play basketball. They still claim it. They call there still, they still say, oh, we still have the pit, but now it's the Matthew Knight deep in the woods of Satan Arena. And, um, <laughs> I added that one part. It's not actually on the logo. But um, I show you the slide as an example of the truth that you can find yourself in the wrong place in life. <laughs> Check it out now. And, and not initially know that you're in the wrong place. Okay, now this is good because we've been laughing together. We're friends. It seems like we're friends. This is good. So what I'm going to say to you next is really difficult, okay? As a proud Husky grad, it pains me to say this. I started my collegiate career at the University of Oregon. So it's okay. Look at, now you're all like, man, I told him not listening to him the rest of the night. So thanks for uh, getting past that. Now, here's the thing. To be fair, it was not the same Oregon as it is today. Nobody from Washington cared at all about Oregon. They they didn't even know they were in the same conference some of the time. I mean, I was a distance runner in high school. Every distance runner who ever read the book or later saw the movie pre, about Steve Prefontaine, duh, wanted to go to Oregon, okay? It was just a trippy little town where they liked to grow and smoke grass, okay? (laughs) It was the place where the Grateful Dead often started and ended their tours. Enough said. That was kind of it. It wasn't that bad. 
It really wasn't that bad. You see what I did? I just now started to rationalize that going to Oregon isn't that bad. (laughs) What's worse is the rationalizing that I did in my life while I was there for just a quarter that has nothing to do with this goofy little rivalry that we might have, but has more to do with the things that I began to do and not do. And finally got me to a place where I didn't even feel the presence of God. Much less could I imagine wanting to follow him anywhere. A little bit of a backstory on that. I got injured in February of my senior year. And I was in shape. I was going to have a good track season. And I'd already gotten this letter, which they send to like, I don't know, a thousand people. Like, hey, if you'd like to walk on at the U of O, that'd be great. And um, I'm like, sweet, they want me. And um, so... I really wanted to go, but um, I didn't even get to run one track meet the spring of my senior year. I, I just had this overuse injury, but didn't know at the time, kept trying to get everything fixed, and nothing got fixed. I felt a little bit lost in my social life, and though I'd just come off of an incredible week at Malibu in August, they used to have this week called college prep, which is ironic, because I was not prepared um, wasn't prepared when I got to Oregon to own in any way, shape, or form my really, really young faith. I was ill-prepared to say no to any of the typical college temptations. I mean, you can either be a yes to something or a no, but if you're a maybe, you're just a yes looking for the right you know, opportunity. And I was a maybe to everything. I had no backbone in my faith. I was really, really lonely. And so I made some decisions out of that. The injury didn't heal Relationships didn't get any better. I found myself really, really depressed. It turns out that drinking a lot and smoking a lot isn't exactly a cure for depression either. I found myself in my own little pit of despair. I knew that deep down, I didn't like who I was becoming. I didn't like it at all. I still have this picture because I'd been, I'd just been at my Malibu camp week experience and everything was great and I decided I wanted to be a young life leader. And one night, I'm, I mean, I'm, I was not completely there. And I was talking to somebody about being a young life leader. I can't wait. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be a young life leader. I'll probably go on young life staff. And I'll never forget, even in the midst of kind of being hazy, having this person say to me, dude, you're kind of a pseudo drug dealer. I don't think they let those people be young life leaders. I remember running up to my room and just thinking, who am I? I know this. I believe in God, but I don't feel him at all. Where did God go? Turns out God hadn't gone anywhere. I had gone somewhere. I'd looked the other way. I'd filled my life with things other than what God had for me. The things that I now tell graduating high school seniors to do as they head into their freshman year, I did the exact opposite of all those things, which is why I have a good list to tell people. It's like, here's one, don't do that, do the other. What do you do when you find yourself in a place where you're wondering if God can even find you there? Do you ever feel even just a little bit of that? Have any of these thoughts ever crossed your mind? How did I get here? Or I feel so ashamed. I can't believe that I did fill in the blank. I feel so lost. Of all those things, I think the worst one is really this. I don't think that God can ever forgive me for this. And sometimes we've said those things to ourselves. It's one thing to look back on them, but when you're in the midst of it, it seems real. It seems bigger 
than whatever power God might have to break you free from those things. The good news is this, and I'm not making this up. There's nowhere that you can travel. There's nothing that you can do. There's no sin that you can commit that can make God stop loving you. And there's nowhere that you can run or find yourself lost from which God cannot rescue you. If you just do one thing, cry out for help. Cry out and say, I don't want to be in this place anymore. Will you rescue me? God is in the business of rescuing us from the pit of despair or even the little places where we've turned a little bit to the left or to the right off the track that he has for us. The story of the lost son in Luke 15 is pretty familiar to most of us. Interestingly, Jesus tells the story in such a way as to elicit the same type of response from the quote-unquote religious people who he was telling it to as I was able to elicit from you regarding Oregon. Literally, as he told the story more and more about the son who preemptively took his inheritance and then went and wasted it, kind of Sin City style, wasted it all. Then he found himself really hungry. And you know what he did? He moved to this country. And he he wanted to fill his stomach with pig slop. And the story would resonate on the ears of those listening. They would literally be able to say, Oh my gosh! I am so glad that's not my son. He would be no son of mine anymore. I would never take him back. Now, what are you going to tell us about this, Jesus? But here's the interesting thing. Luke writes that Jesus really turns the table on him. In verse 17 of chapter 15, he says this, Then the son came to his senses and realized, essentially, how much better it would be to be a child of his father again. And he went back to his father. That part makes sense. He should be ashamed. I've been there. He should be humbled. And he should want to ask for forgiveness. But this is the icing on the cake. The fact that, that when we turn in our brokenness to God, Jesus is telling us this is what it's like in God's kingdom. That if we would just simply admit that we're lost and broken, then God can do everything else that we need to get us in a right position with him. How do I know that's true? Because as it goes on in verse 20, uh, through the end of the story, there it says this, when he was still a long way off, he's decided now he's going to go back and say, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just let me live in the house and be a servant and all that. And he's going to get this speech. He's probably going to over and over and over. Okay, I'm going to be really good at this speech. I'm going to say it. And he gets there. He was still a long way off. His father saw him. His heart pounding. He ran out. He embraced him and kissed him. The son started his speech, yada, yada, yada. But he stopped The father wasn't listening. He was calling to his servants, quick, go get a clean set of clothes, a robe, put it on him. Put the family ring back on his finger. The one that says he's not just a servant in this house, but he is a child of the father. Put some sandals on his feet. They're dirty. He's been walking out there. He's worth more than that to me. Matter of fact, he's worth this much. Go get the big cow. That one we've been keeping for the big party. Let's get it. We're going to roast it. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here. Given up for dead, now alive. Given up for lost, now found. And they began to have a wonderful, wonderful time. Does that fit with the picture you have of God when you found yourself in a place that you know God doesn't want you to be? I think my experience has been that when I feel worst about myself and my relationship with God... My picture of God changes, and I think he's really, really mad at me. 
I don't have any scripture that backs that up, but I have this feeling that just comes over me. So I need to be able to counter that with the knowledge that Jesus Christ has decided all that he needs to about you and me and our lives. We may have some deciding to do about what we think about God and whether we're going to trust God with everything. But on the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, any question you ever had about what God's decision is about you should be answered. He loves you, delights in you, and he came to buy you back from whatever sin you sold yourself to. And he can buy you back. You can be free. And that's exactly what happened to me. I became free. The pit of despair does not have the final word in our life. Your future is not defined by your past because Jesus said it is finished. Second place where you can find yourself a little bit outside of the will of God and trying to figure out, what do I do from here, is what I like to call the car seat of comparison. Um, I think I have a slide up here. Those are uh, actual models of, uh, or pictures of three of the different cars that I have either owned or currently owned. The one on the far uh, down the bottom is the ministry van. Many of you have had the opportunity to ride in the, the, the awesome ministry van. Who wouldn't want a ministry van? It's awesome. It has, uh, we're the second owner. The first one um, defaulted on their loan, and so it got repoed. That was cool. And uh, we had the opportunity for it to come into our life. Because the other crappy car that I was driving at the time died while I was driving from Arizona over to California to talk at a camp for Young Life. Made it just about there, just long enough for my wife to drop me off. And then she and the kids were going to go to Disneyland for a couple of days. And I was going to meet them there on the, on the last day and join them up there. And the car died. That was fun for all of us. So uh, we bought another car. Didn't have any money. So I bought it on a credit card. That's really a dumb thing to do. And... Uh, <laughs> Turns out the interest rate's kind of high, but uh, we had to have that. So, but my first car I ever had was up. It was a 1983 Honda Civic 1500. It's a beautiful thing. It was green, kind of pea green colored. So we called it the pea, and because uh, we're guys and it's so funny. And then, uh, uh, and it was awesome because it would. There was something wrong with like the exhaust and the muffler stuff, so it would build up to a massive backfire when I was going down hills. And I went to school here after I came home from the faraway land and came back to the University of Washington, um, went to school here, and so you'd go down the hills, you know, I lived in the Greek system down in Kaisai, way down at the bottom of the hill, and you kind of go down, I'd get by the middle of the Greek system, that thing would have built up, and then BAM! It just it was awesome. You'd see, like, people diving to the ground. It was seriously kind of cool. But uh, the car itself, not so good. Um, but the worst car I ever had was the Saab. You look at there, you kind of go, look at that. That's, it's a 1991 Saab 9000 Turbo. What could be wrong with that? As it turns out, um, my life in ministry has taken a few different turns, but all of them include this, that I've never had enough money to have a decent car, so you always take a deal from somebody who's like, hey, what if I give you a good deal on this salvage title Saab? What could be wrong with it? Turns out everything. Do you know why the title was salvaged? Because it had been submerged in a flood before, okay? <laughs> Things don't work well after they've been underwater for a long time. So here's the deal. I got that car, and early on after I got back from the, from the University of Oregon deal, I felt like God was calling me into ministry, and particularly into Young Life. 
Not long after I came back from Oregon, I got involved in the inn and joined a small group. I hope you heard that. After God went running to me, I full-on ran back to him. Like I'd seen the life that was outside of what the Lord had for me. I didn't want it anymore. I don't need to repeat the same mistake twice. I'd gone to Oregon alone, stayed alone, hid the fact even that I was a believer. When I came back here, I said, I'm a mess up. I want to be a Christian, and I really need some help. I came to the inn. I got in a small group. I had a bunch of people that figuratively washed my feet, changed my life, set me on this path where now I was involved in ministry. And I felt this vocational call to ministry pretty early on. It was really neat. But um, after I started doing that, I led a young life team at, down at uh, my old high school that I graduated from. My sophomore year, I was a team leader. My junior and senior year, I was raising a little bit of money to be on student staff. And they kind of were fast-tracking me towards being on Young Life staff. At the same time, I wasn't on the in leadership team because I did that, but I used to sing, wait for it now, special music all the time at the end. It was fantastic. I am the wedding singer of my friend's generation, absolutely. Fully cheesy, and I can sing every goofy, dumb, lovey-dovey 80s song in a wedding, because I have. So the Lord had given me, had found favor. <laughs> I'd found favor in the Lord's eyes, apparently. I also was, now this is, this is the best, though. I was a member of, seriously, wait for this one, though. Run UPC. No, whatever you think it is, it was worse, okay? It was a very white, very 80s rap group that performed at the end. Matter of fact, one time they had a concert, like, like a real Jesus-y guy. It was John Fisher, I think, like down in the, in the big church. And they invited Run UPC. We were the opening act, like down in the, in the, in the main service there. It was really ridiculous, is what it was. But it, it afforded me some uh, minor form of celebrity status, which is uh, really embarrassing as I look back now. Uh, during that same time, just to set the, 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 the scene for this problem I've always had with cars and then the jealousy that that's caused for me to have, um, is this. I met my, my girlfriend, my best friend, who, who became my wife at Work Week at Malibu way back before we even called it Spouse Quest. I was, in a, I was an English major. <laughs> I, uh, I actually enjoyed my classes. And uh, when I wasn't hanging out with high school students or kind of around Green Lake catching some rays. It used to actually be sunny in the spring back then. That was kind of cool. The point is this. I had a great life. I had a great life, and it was a great fit for me, and God knew it. Here's the deal. It wasn't this drudgery of figuring out how do I stay in God's will. It was resist the stuff that you know is not for you and then let God just open up some doors and walk through them. Skip Lee talked about that last week. He said, you can't go wrong. Just move forward following after God and watch what he opens up for you. Well, he opened up a life that was really awesome and a good fit for me, but I had a crappy car. But so did everybody else. Then we went on Young Life staff. My friends got real jobs and I still... Had a great life, but a crappy car. And their cars got better. I began to suddenly wish that I had their cars. I wondered sometimes if it wouldn't be easier if I even had their life. In all these little pictures that I had, it was my same wife, my same kids, my same joy that I had sharing the gospel with people. I didn't want to switch any of that stuff. I just wanted some of their stuff. Hmm. Sometimes I didn't think that way. It wasn't overwhelming or an everyday issue, but it reared its head a few times, sometimes painfully, sometimes in funny ways. One time, I'm in Tucson with the salvage title, Here I'll Make You a Good Deal on the Saab car. 
It's 113 degrees outside. We're in danger of not getting paid the next month. We didn't have enough money to go home and visit our family. Ministry's going great, but I just don't know how we're going to pay the staff that we have or even my, you know, make sure that we can feed our family. God came through, by the way. Always has. But in that moment, I just was ticked off. And I bought a 40-ounce Big Gulp that I probably couldn't afford. I was driving up to a cross-country meet to go hang out with the Mountain View Mountain Lions. Great name. And uh, the sob is created poorly. And they put all of the uh, electrical stuff right on the floor of the front, where you should be able to put a 40-ounce Big Gulp. And I did, and it flipped over, and I spilled all this Diet Coke it all the way down, dripped all the way through the electrical stuff, which at the moment I thought was okay. I dry it all up, and I'm driving away, and I realize I don't have enough money to go buy another one. I'll just dry up, and I'm mad. I'm having this conversation with God because I'm mad, mostly because I'm thirsty. And I'm like, we moved down here. Have you ever done this? Have you ever talked to God audibly? You should do it in a moving car, because once you get to a light, you're a creepy person, okay? <laughs> and I, I know this because I got to a light. And when I got to the light, I was telling God everything that he'd done wrong in my life, and I needed a better car, and I needed this and that and all that. And I decided, for whatever reason, I hit a window, which, which was dumb. It was 113 degrees out. Keep the heat outside. And all of my windows started going up and down. <laughs> <laughs> and they wouldn't stop. They're just going up and down and up and down, and I'm yelling at God, and everybody's going, that dude's a freak. <laughs> right? But as crazy as it must have appeared for the people next to me, what do you think it looked like to God? I mean, he knew that he'd rescued me from the pit. He knew that everything good in my life was because of him. And he he took my little tirade. But he didn't understand it, I don't think, because, see, God doesn't compare your life with the life of other people. He's called you to follow him on your path. In John 21... Verse 15 to the end, I'll just sum up. Jesus reinstates Peter after Peter has denied him three times. And now the risen Christ has reinstated him. And he basically says, I'm going to build my church upon you, but you're going to die for me. And Peter looks over at John and he says, what about him? Awesome answer. John, Jesus says this. If I want him to remain alive until I return, not that he did, wasn't the point at all. But if I do want that, what is that to you? You must follow me. That's what God's saying to us. He's got a great plan for you. But it's your plan. Don't get stuck in the car seat of comparison or anything else in your life. Live the life that God has in front of you. He doesn't need another me. Probably doesn't need another Skip Lee. But he's got something planned for you that only you can fulfill. And you won't fulfill it. You'll miss it. If you're too busy wishing you had somebody else's life. Don't spend your time. Don't waste your time doing that. Just live the life that he has for you. A little slide up here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we've been in the last couple of weeks. And you can just look at it there. But essentially what uh, has already been unpacked for us here is this. That God knew when he was creating the body that he needed different parts to do different things. The issue is not that God didn't know what he was doing when he made the body. The issue is sometimes we don't like the place that he found for us in the body, right? But it's not about us. It's not about us individually. 
And yet God loves us deeply, but he has a place for us in the body. Play your part. Receive it. You'll have so much more joy in life as you receive what God has for you. I'm not saying don't dream. Don't. I'm just saying when God dreams for you, choose that dream. Don't keep trying to pick somebody else's. And if you take the time to even think at all and cultivate an attitude of gratefulness for what God has done for you, you won't be looking anywhere else for life. You'll just stay right where he's found it for you. The, fact, the last thing is this. The lens, the place where we can find ourselves in difficulties, the lens of limited perspective. Matt, I've got a picture. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen these uh, pictures. They're called forced perspective photography. And so it's like you put somebody up near and something else in the back, and it's like, whoa, a freakishly tall kid? No, it's just a, it's kind of a figment of your imagination. Next shot, you can see there, too. Similar. Now, oh, check this out. Are they walking through the wall of water? Or, wait for it, are they just laying on the side of the pool with their feet up, barely in the water? Oh, yes. Some people's minds never saw the one thing, because we all work differently. But that's cool. It's perspective. Then I think I have one more shot there, too. This is my favorite, because look, it's right here. It's fantastic. Although I would say this. Okay, as somebody that grew up in Seattle, all but that one little bad section of my life... If you're, if you got the umbrella, you can't have the rain jacket. It's one or the other. <laughs> Don't be a wuss, okay? Like, choose. I said that to my wife today. She goes, it's for the picture. It's kind of cute. I go, I don't like it. So, um, anyhow, here's the deal. We need forced eternal perspective. It would help us trust God more on a day-to-day basis. If somehow the lens of our eyes would look through and we could see not just our current circumstances, but God's plan looking back. At the beginning of the talk, I said to you this, that I can look back, Romar's quote, that God is and has been working in your life, preparing you for his purposes, not not yours, but his own. And I can say, looking back, I can see that clearly. The problem is looking forward. We don't always have that perspective. But if we could see light, life in light of eternity, it would change everything. I've heard it said, life justifies living. It's kind of a rallying cry for the side of the world that thinks that whoever dies with the most toys wins. It doesn't make any sense to me. I say to people that really think that, really? Like, this is all there is. This world, this is all there is? What do you say then to, well, I have two friends that have uh, Down syndrome boys, and their boys are now five and seven. And they're the joy of their life, but they're also a massive challenge in their life. And more than that, their lives will be challenged. From here until this side of eternity ends for them, is this all there is? What do you say to my good friend Pat, who a number of years ago was driving out to speak and tell kids about Jesus Christ at a camp? As he was driving out to the camp, a drunk driver drifted across the road, and just like that, two of his little girls were gone. Taken. While he was serving the God of the universe. What do you say to him about this life? It, it's just the reward in and of itself. Even in the good things in life, if we stop for just a moment, we have to realize that they're just a little bit of a shadow of what God has going on for us that's so much better than this. There is hope for you if you can keep eternal perspective and know this. This is not all there is. It's not all there is. I've got a slide here that has a passage of scripture that says this. 
We don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed every day. Our light and momentary troubles, really losing like your child, being struck down with something in your life, losing your home, losing all the money you've had in the world. They don't seem light and momentary unless there's something more than this, which the passage continues. We fix our eyes not on what we can see, but what we can't. What we see is temporary, but what's unseen is eternal. God has something more for us. More for us than what we can see right now. As you look at the choices in front of you, your major, your job, your career, it's helpful to keep perspective. Census statistics tell us that you'll probably move eight to ten times in your life. What does that leave you with the friends that you have right now? You'll probably change jobs six to nine times in your life. They can't decide if it's a career or a job. It's just people are switching things, chasing after another dollar or because they don't have any job anymore. Massive amounts of change that are to come, not right in your situation right now. It allows you to say, look, pick a major, pick wrong, big deal. Study something you want. Study what you think the Lord might be calling you to. And if you're not sure, just be a good student at whatever you're studying. And that'll give you the opportunity to study something else. Choose wisely in the whole relationship area. I always say this. Go ahead, date somebody that likes Jesus. Marry somebody who loves Jesus. It'll make all the difference in your life. But other than that, if God calls you to marriage and to family, then all the other stuff's just kind of gravy. If God calls you and your life does not include that, again, you won't say that it was your job or your car that defined who you are. It'll be the relationships that God brings into your life, whether they're your family or the family that you create around you. God's way is best. His perspective is eternal, looks beyond where we are right now. And that gives me freedom to mess up, not in the way of going to Oregon again, but to risk more, to love more. If I really believed and had God's eternal perspective, I would laugh more and probably cry more every day. I would certainly love more, and I'd be afraid less. That's what I want in life. That's what I'd love to have for you. Three things to close. You are not lost in the pit. He is with you. If you're there tonight, He is there with you. Only He can comfort you. He can rescue you. And He longs to lift you up from the pit of despair. Second thing, you are no fool to follow the path that God lays out for you. Not looking to the left or to the right, recognizing His ways best. And finally, you're not done being made into His likeness. He will change you. And ultimately, He'll bring you home. For you're His. That is His will for you. Thank you, Jesus, that that has been your will for me. Let's pray. God, thank you for tonight and the chance to be together and... Open up your word, but also it's hard for me as I think about just the things I've shared of my life, except for I know this, that they don't define me. And as I look forward to the things that you have for me, I'm certain of this. You are trustworthy. You get the final word. Life is found in you and defined by you. I look forward to the plans that you have for me and the plans that you have for my friends here tonight. Give them a greater degree of hope and trust in you. 
eternal perspective and the ability to not compare their life to somebody else's. Give them joy along the way, I pray. In Jesus' name.